Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 41 of The Pick List. I can't believe we're here, but we are. Uh, How's your week been so far? We are here indeed. Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Thank you. Uh, Once again, I'm on deadline. I've got loads of copywriting projects at the moment. Uh, Very much looking forward to being off deadline, I can tell you that. What have you been up to? Uh, For me, it's still all about the United Nations and preparing the global meat industry for the Food Systems Summit, which is coming around at a rate of knots. So it's keeping me out of mischief. Very good. And we've had some fantastic new followers on Instagram as well, haven't we? We have. We've got a growing following on Instagram. So and we're so grateful for everyone that listens to The Pick List. So if you like us, uh, please do follow us on The Pick List podcast on Insta and you'll uh, see me posting lots of uh, cool stuff on our stories. We've got a brilliant guest this week. Yes, we have indeed. We are joined by Sam Akinlui, who is the co-founder of AdSalt. AdSalt is a new not-for-profit innovation accelerator to drive growth of black-owned FMCG brands. We had a fascinating conversation with Sam about how retailers can improve diversity, not just in the workplace, but also importantly on shelves. And he brought some really interesting articles for us to discuss. Should we start the show? Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Julia. Hi, Laura. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and how you're connected to the food industry? Yes, so I'm Sam Akinliyi. I run a non-profit called SALT, which is all about making things possible for anyone. So the idea that even though people might not choose to take opportunities, they know that it is possible. And what we want to do is try to create the pathways, the opportunities and the access to what people may want. Um, so specifically, a sort of three areas, helping young underrepresented talent and it's black talent initially to get into the food industry. Um, there's this middle bit, which I've been focused on for a while, which is coaching and working with leaders of organisations to bring more of their difference, but also create organisations that really value difference in its broadest sense. And that allows people from underrepresented groups, obviously, to thrive in those organisations. And finally, um, last but certainly not least, we've got a, an, something called AdSalt, which is an accelerator, which says, yes, if you don't want to work in a big corporate and you want to start your own thing, particularly within the food and drink industry, well, let's help you do that. Because there is real underrepresentation of black owned brands um, in the UK. So SALT kind of has those three, those three facets. Um, and, and that's what I do with most kind of most of my time. Um, my background, industry background, um, prior to that was I was the sales director on Mars um, Chocolate for the grocery business. I used to run this strategy team, so the revenue management team there. Um, General Mills for a while and Nestle for quite a while as well, all in sales, commercial and leadership roles. Um, yeah, married two lovely girls, eight and four um, in southwest London. 
Fantastic. And we should say AdSword, which is your, your accelerator, that's a, a fairly recent launch, isn't it? It's something you launched earlier this year, and you've got some pretty heavyweight industry support for that as well. Can you just give us a sense of who's bought into that and who's supporting you? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So it's it's one of these things that we call it an accelerator, but what we've talked about is when you look on shelves, there's only two or three black-owned brands on mainstream retail shelves. So of all the brands you could buy in a major retailer, in most retailers, there's one black owned brand, if any, and maximum there's probably three. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. So you can imagine when we're speaking to retailers, I'm not saying it's the retailer's fault necessarily, but it's something that we want to do something about. Um, So we have got the retailers. So we've got Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado and Waitrose all involved in the process giving their feedback really early on in the innovation process for some amazing brands um, that we've we found that just happen to be black owned. Um, we've also got industry leaders and experts who can come in and talk about marketing uh, or they can talk about the routes to market. And they just happen to be, they might be really big brands like Diageo or Kraft Heinz, or we've got Grays. So the right sort of, the right input at the right time for those brands is invaluable. Um, so we're giving them access to those people as well. So it's a real industry effort um, because I think the industry does acknowledge that there is real underrepresentation, um, not just in or what on shelves, not just in the workplace, but actually physically on the shelves. Yeah, and uh, we'll get a chance to dive into into what you do and your take on what you think needs to change within the industry as well And um, a, a little later when we talk about your articles. Now, one of the things we always like to ask our guests is to just tell us a little bit about their experience of the pandemic, you know, how COVID has affected their businesses, the categories they operate in, or generally what they do. What impact have you seen on food entrepreneurs and black food entrepreneurs in particular? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I've worked with the big companies. I mean, I work with the big companies, the staples, the big brands that everyone goes to, the ones that you think, ah, there could be a pandemic. I'm going to need a lot of that. You can imagine some brands have done brilliantly well. Um, you don't have to, you know, those the big mainstream ones. When it comes to challenger brands, though, and brands that, you, you know, retailers rightly were like, we need full pallets, full loads, we need to maintain availability, we need to make sure our supply chains work and, and we are supplying the nation. You just go to the big brands. They go to the big brands and, and that means that for a moment, or actually longer than that, um, the smaller ones might get squeezed out. They might not get the supply, they might not get the focus because everyone was coming together, panicking, consolidating. So my my observation, and I've, I also, I'm sort of, I advise the guys at Young Foodies who are the community of, of, of challenger brands. So I've been advising them for three years or so. It was a case of being more nimble, looking for opportunities, thinking differently, thinking about my direct to consumer, other ways to get to, um, to homes um, because the big brands actually have really benefited and some of the small brands haven't necessarily but some of them have done a brilliant job and they're using social media using direct to consumer some of them have really thrived um so that's been my observation of brands just being quite close and to the both the big ones and talking to them but also some of the challenger brands who are just trying to figure out how to you know speak to the buyers where the buyers are rightly saying what you know we're focused on keeping our shelves full 
um, and maintaining the queues and maintaining safety within our stores. Totally. Now, as you know, the pick list is all about highlighting some interesting reads from the world of food and drink. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits as well. How do you stay up to date with what's happening in the industry? What publications do you like to read? It's quite interesting. I'm I, I, The grocer's the one that I've just been trained to go to because I've been in the industry for 20 years. Um, and while I don't have my... Um, subscription anymore you often get the the links and you and you see those things i use i, I go online and i'm and if i'm searching specifically um i don't do that much reading i talk to a lot of i'm always talking to people so there's always the conversation how is it going um and so that's that's kind of i haven't got brilliant reading habits to be honest so so when i came on to this i was like oh okay i need to find some articles so i kind of go with what am i interested in and let's find some articles on that as opposed to always have that receiving um, mode for for news and articles. Um, that might be sacrilege, obviously, but that's <laughs> how I work. Not sacrilege at all. So tell us about um, your first article that you've picked for us. Yes, so mine has a theme and it's really in line with sort of what we're doing at AdSalt. And um, one of the first things that triggered us to start it was someone talking to us about what Sephora had done in the US. And Sephora is a is a retailer in the US, and 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 I'll give a bit of background. There was a few articles saying that they had committed to making fifteen percent of their retail space black owned, and there was this: Why aren't we doing it in the UK? Why aren't we doing it in the UK? We should make sure that you know there's representation and she'll actually do a quota on shelves which is something that I actually was really against to be honest because just doing that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work um so delving a bit deeper um there was, I, I looked up the late an article it's an article in Forbes it gave a little bit more of um a bit more detail on that subject so um, the headline is Sephora's planning to double down on black owned brands but quite early in the article, it talks about the fact that when it comes to ethnic hair and the beauty market, you know, African-Americans account for 90% of overall spend. And when you actually look at the percentage of black people or Af Afro-Caribbean and um, African-American people in the US, it's guess what, 14.6%. So it actually makes a lot of sense for them to actually, when it comes to, it's a commercial, thing as well it's not just something that says increased representation well they should do that because they are you know these are people who spend a lot of money on hair, a group that spends a lot of money on hair and beauty um but also it is a representative amount and when it comes to hair and beauty it's very specific to an ethnicity unlike food and drink that not necessarily is so i wouldn't so you know especially mainstream drinks um food and drink so that's one of the that was probably my first article that i found quite interesting that nuance of the 15 percent i'm thinking actually there's a reason for that 15 percent here but what does that mean for the uk because we probably i i certainly wouldn't want a quota to be filled of just making sure brands of a certain ethnicity are on shelf because they have to sell it's not just about the ethnicity we always talk about the fact that the shoppers and consumers are in the main color blind. They want a great product at the right price, and they really don't know who's behind and anyone anyone who's behind that product. They tend not to know. 
Um, so it's a big focus for me to say actually irrespective of, yes, you're black owned, but we need to make sure that your products are competitive in mainstream UK food industry. Um, it, it's a fascinating article, and I had uh, noticed this earlier in the year because I'm a big fan of Sephora, Sephora, and I'm always annoyed there's no UK footprint. And uh, whenever I'm uh, in Europe, which feels like a very long time ago now, I'm always collecting or in the US because I really like the way that they, those stores curate products. Whereas I guess here in the UK, you're looking at a concession model in a department store, and I always find that super intimidating because you're thinking you've got some really glamorous person behind that counter that's going to try and sell you just those products and there's forum models really nice in terms of having different um brands uh, merchandise together but what yeah. i liked about the article it, it pulled out the fact that black shoppers receive poor service and i'd never even thought about that before but when i think about my own experience i get intimidated by these amazing looking ladies and actually i do want to see people that maybe look like me and mm. and maybe use products that that i might find beneficial and i think maybe as, as you say shoppers um on occasion can be colorblind but making sure we have tailored products and putting marketing at the center of your organization is key if you've got um, these shopper groups that can't see people that look like them in store and also products that actually are going to be beneficial to them with, with huge um, footprints. So I, I thought it was a fascinating article, but I was intrigued. Do you think this will then roll into having more staff of diversity, people of colour that, you know, and I know you say about quotas, but will that drive more diversity into the people that are serving as well as the products on their shelves? I think it's really good because I think it's just like with hair and beauty, it has to, I suppose. So if you want, if you want someone that looks like you and to, to your point, Laura, that you can identify with, yeah. and but they don't look like you at all, but not at all. Then that how can you how can they help when you think about shades and stuff? And I I, I do think that should be the case, particularly in hair and beauty, um, where you do have the human connection in those kind of stores. Um, so yes, um, the, the, there's a nuance, and I think you, you almost have to be quite specific about the category and say yes, it absolutely is needed here. In food and drink um probably less so um but you have to approach it differently and um, there's a nuance there so yeah I, I think absolutely there should be more representation especially if you know that that people of different ethnicities spend so much on these things I was really interested in the point you made about how about the this sort of setting a quota and how you felt that it wasn't perhaps the most effective way actually to increase uh, the diversity of brands on shelf because I suppose there might be some people listening thinking that you know but you need to you need to set some targets or, or put some figures to it because otherwise it sort of becomes well intentioned um, but it's really difficult to to measure progress. If it's not a quota for products on shelf, what do you think would be a more productive uh, system or metric to put in place? I think it's really, it's what you've just said, Julia, which is progress. So if I can say there's three now and say we need to double that this year, triple that next year and get to that number through working with brands to genuinely develop innovation and products that people love that you know that deserve their space on shelf because i'm convinced that that's possible but if you said right from 20 end of 2021 
we want, so the, the percentage of black people in the UK is about 3%. I want 3% of the space. I don't think there's 3% of the turnover yet and the products yet, but that should be an aspiration. So I would be saying to each retailer, how many have you got? How many do you want to get to? How many is in your innovation pipeline and how do we get them listed? I think the challenge with just saying, right, we're going to put them in now, which is what how I would define the quota is, we're just going to put them in now. They're probably not there, but if they are good, they're probably not refined enough. They haven't gone through the challenges, the, 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 the development, you know, the constructive feedback, um, the investment, frankly, to get to a point where they just, where they will be on shelf and have the rate of sale that they should have. That, that makes a lot of sense. Are you finding when you're talking to retailers, are they even capturing that? Do they have any way of, of measuring or understanding how diverse the brand ownership is that they're listing? There's so many brands in a retailer. So I, and it's hard to capture a lot of data on diversity, frankly, whether, whether it be, um, and if it's how you, how you capture it, um, for a variety of reasons, it's, it's very complex. There's so many. Some people are trained, and like I was, I wasn't necessarily trained, but a lot of people are to say, actually, I don't want to tick that box when it says what ethnicity are you. You know, so how do you do that when people you always used any kind of found it a threat to answer the question, what ethnicity are you? So they don't feel that. But I think what retailers are seeing is it's very they know that it's a challenge they've been very open about it and they're so open to working to make the difference while balancing that we're saying right let's help you let's give you the input so this product are genuinely great and help you develop the design but I think it's really hard to they are very aware of it I would say and they are looking and certainly the ones we're working with are proactively looking for great products from people um, from black people Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from Dezine, and it's an article titled Camille Wanala Creates Pop-Up Supermarket Food Store at the Design Museum. Uh, this has been covered in a number of publications this week. It's news that the shop at the Design Museum in London has been converted into a pop-up supermarket selling food and drink products designed by 10 artists. And the idea behind this concept is basically to highlight the importance of creativity in our lives, including in spaces that can be a bit functional, like supermarkets. But more importantly, it's trying to draw attention to the fact that many artists, of course, haven't been able to showcase their work in the past year because museums and galleries have been closed. And in contrast, supermarkets have been open. And interestingly, um, museums right now remain closed, but non-essential retail has reopened, which is why this installation in the form of a shop is allowed to be open to the public. So it's a really clever way, I think, of getting art in front of people through the medium of retail. Um, and in fact, the installation is described as exclusive essential items designed by emerging artists at grocery store prices, making creativity essential, which I just think is a, is a great way of putting this. And the article quotes Design Museum Director and CEO Tim Marlowe as saying, Our high streets, museums and galleries have been hit hard by the pandemic. This is an opportunity to get people back to enjoying our cultural institutions safely and creatively. And he also says he sees the installation as an opportunity to rethink what we buy, who profits and what we consider to be essential. And I just think it's a fascinating concept. 
And the designs themselves, the products are great. It's really worth having a look at the article, but also at the uh, Design Museum website where the products are available um, for sale in the shop. Most of them are now sold out, I have to say. I've managed to snap up a really beautifully designed washing up liquid, which I'm very excited to receive. But um, it's really, you know, punchy, colourful um, designs. What also struck my eye, though, is that this is in fact an installation that's a collaboration between the Design Museum and Bombay Sapphire the gin brand owned by Bacardi. And in fact, the uh, installation itself features some limited edition artist-designed gin and tonic bottles. So really interesting concept, but also an interesting collaboration. And I think um, an interesting example of an FMCG brand dipping their toes back into experiential marketing, but at the same time also signaling their support to, to the cultural sector. Sam, what did you make of it? What did you make of the product designs? Yeah, I... You know, I I really enjoy, I just loved the images. I loved how striking they were. I like I loved how different it was to, um, I guess an in-store retail environment that we go into and we're just so used to. So I I really like the designs, but actually the, the the specific product design is amazing, but also just the design of the store and how it was set up and and how bright it was and how you can appreciate. A simple thing in life is the potential to appreciate such a simple thing in life like shopping <laughs> and the design and those things so I, I really enjoyed it and I was just thinking about how um, brands could stretch to be very interesting and how important packaging is but also if it's reusable how you can be really proud just like you said Julia that I've got this design now, what do you do with it? It's, it's something you can hold on to, this limited edition, especially when it's that great. Um, so yeah, I just thought it really stretched the imagination of a shopping experience. And yeah, I love the design. I, I would agree. And looking at the photos, it just made me feel really happy. <laughs> and as you say, you know, we've met, particularly in the last 18 months, we've looked at food as a commodity in a way and you're just darting around the supermarket and we've spoken on the show before about sort of running the gauntlet. But this made you stop and think. And I'm so excited about your washing up liquid, Julia. Are you actually going to use it? Or no, are you going no, to use it as art? I will use it as art, and I'll, um, I'll when I get it, I'll post a picture on the uh, on the picklist social channels. Um, yeah, and I'm very excited to um to receive it. But it's exactly as you say. I think it's like an opportunity to elevate everyday items into something that's um yeah some, that just gives you that spark of creativity. And to Sam's point as well, the importance of packaging. We've heard so much recently about um, packaging and slimming it down and the impact of plastic, and that's all really important. But I think, you know, to be innovative and look at different designs around packaging as well, rather and taking it back to, I know, the old 1970s quote, being the salesman on the shelf, that it can be again and it can do all of that stuff. Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week is from The Guardian and it's got the headline New Asda Owners Snap Up Fast Food Chain Leon. And um, as we know, um, Asda are in the process of being purchased by the Issa brothers, the billionaire brothers that have the petrol station business EG Group. Um, and they have bought Leon restaurants for a uh, hundred million uh, just months after acquiring Asda, as I say, which is currently um, going through the competition watchdog. 
Um, Leon, as you may remember, was uh, founded by John Vincent and also uh, Henry Dimbleby, the uh, Boris Johnson's national food czar, who's uh, in the process of uh, going through the second part of the national food strategy. Um, and the article talks about the Issa brothers uh, leased their first petrol station back in 1999, which in my mind doesn't feel that long ago. And I think, God, oh, what, what have I been doing in the intervening period? What they've been doing is they've now got over 6,000 um, petrol stations over 10 countries and have been on a buying str- uh, spree to boost their food business portfolio. The article talks about their uh, um, previous bid for Cafe Nero, and they're still circling around Cafe Nero, and also they'd hoped to buy fashion uh, giant Topshop. Um, And one of the other things it mentions in the article, which I find fascinating, is uh, the involvement of M&S ex-boss Stuart Rose, and he's joined uh, the EC uh, group as their chair. Uh, In October, the group's auditors, Deloitte, had resigned, fueling concerns about EG's governance and management, and having someone like Stuart Rose coming in, I think, really uh, adds that level of credibility. Um, Thinking back to Leon, uh, the company has 42 company-owned restaurants uh, in London and other larger cities in the UK, as well as 29 sites run as franchises across uh, transport hubs. And I always have to think, when you're travelling, how exciting it is when you see a Leon and you think, brilliant, that'll do, whatever time of day there'll be something to eat. Um, And then it talks about EG's plans Uh, to open around 20 Leon sites uh, from 2022, including a number of drive-throughs. And then the article also talks talks about actually how the Issa brothers are experts at having franchises and they operate Starbucks, KFCs, Burger Kings, Greggs uh, and Subways across their uh, petrol station uh, uh, models. So it's actually quite exciting for them. And they say Leon is a fantastic brand that we've long admired. And I suppose, you know, we think about food on the go and how it is often unhealthy. And actually, is this a now step into allowing us to eat maybe healthy meals on the go when whenever on the go comes back? And then the other thing that I wanted to pick your brains on and mention was I'm only just found it. I know I'm a total laggard, but um, I bumped into some of the Leon products uh, in my local Sainsbury's. Yeah. Currently a massive fan of the Leon ketchup. I have to admit, I'm having it almost on every single meal, which probably isn't ideal. Um, and what does that mean for ranges like that that are in competitor retailers if the, the Issa Brothers um, um, obviously finalise the Asda sale? What do you think, Sam? First of all, I love Leon. I, I, I had been known in lockdown, even though I could go down and make some lunch to deliver a Leon. Not one close by. I'm going to admit that now. Um, and their nuggets, gluten-free nuggets are amazing. And also like their satay, chicken satay. So it's, a, it's just a fantastic product. Like, yeah, you pay more for it, but you know it's, it's, it doesn't feel like fast food. But it's 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 well healthy as far as I'm concerned, and and the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, those service stations where there's an opportunity to be, you know, feel a bit guilty and go to the Burger King and a KFC. You could like if there was a Leon there, that would make you very happy, um, and the family as well. So I think as an opportunity, it's huge, particularly with service stations, and, and certainly around London, there's a lot of Leons. Um, the brand is really strong. So this, the cookbooks, I don't know if you saw the cookbooks and, and their branding has always been so iconic even since they started. You see the Leon sign, you see it on the cookbooks and they've translated that into stores. So they actually started in Sainsbury's. Um, I don't know if you remember, you know, the products initially in Sainsbury's. So yeah, I'm, 
it's quite interesting how that's going to work. And you know, I think Sainsbury's have them within the Future Brands, um, the Future Brands Initiative. Um, with Asda buying them, yeah, that becomes quite interesting. So I don't know the ins and outs of it, but is there a separate license between the in-store and who owns that? And also in retail, it's not in-store, but in, in the cafes and retail, there may well be. Um, but also, if it's a fantastic brand that people know and love, and it's not just, you know, yes, it is in city centres, but they do have the cookbooks. They do have that iconic brand I think a lot of people have seen. Well, other retailers going to want it. It's a brand. And that's where it get, get really interesting. It's, would you have it, would a Tesco have it if they knew as their own some of it, or Sainsbury's have it if they knew some of it, if it's a real, if it's a, if it sells really well? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think you have to look at sales. And, and that then starts to say, actually, what other retailers may want to do something like that and get involved and find another brand that could travel from out of home to in-home. Um, but I do think the Leon purchase, when you've already got the footprint of, all, and even the Nero, Cafe Nero, just imagine if that happens, but certainly service stations, that's a massive opportunity. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm a massive Leon fan here as well. And I think they've, I, they have done an exceptional job on the retail range. Um, I think the design is great and it's really sort of um, tr translated that look and feel of the restaurants into a, a grocery retail um, environment. I think their homeware range is, is done really well as well. Beautiful. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with that. I think, Sam, I probably agree with your sense that rather than thinking of it as a sort of Asda Leon thing. This is a an Issa Leon thing, and and I think the connection to the EG side of um of, of that group is probably the more immediate opportunity, um rather than saying oh let's look at what what Asda is going to do do with a brand like that. I think it's it's going to be about enhancing forecourt propositions. And I remember when we had Brian Roberts on the show a few months ago, he had just been to visit one of the uh, super new electric charging forecourts. And I remember one of the points he made was that because if you charge an electric vehicle, it's not a quick two minute no. thing. You have to spend time there. The retail proposition at these forecourts becomes much more important because people have to spend time there. And then having something like Leon actually really enhances that proposition. So that would be my sense that, that that's sort of the, the more obvious synergies. But uh, yeah, we're going to be really interesting to see what they do with that. And a well-loved brand, clearly by all of us here on the, on the podcast. So um, yeah, I think we'll keep a, a very close eye on that. I'm just jealous I can't have a Leon delivery for lunch. I know, yeah. I know <laughs> just to rub that in. I know. <laughs> we've, we've, we're, we're like on another planet up here. <laughs> and it is I always feel a bit guilty if I, I didn't need to do that and you try to like put the put the paper bags deep down the recycling so you know my wife doesn't roll her eyes and say like you didn't need to do that <laughs> <laughs> I would do the same if I if I could have a Leon delivery I, I definitely would Sam <laughs> tell us about your second article for us yes um so my second article is related to the first one and, and it's something that Target um announced um, very recently. So this is something, um, so this is an article, Retail Touchpoints, I got this article from. It says Target pledges to spend $2 billion on Black-owned businesses by 2025. Um, and this was released on April the 7th, so just a couple, just a couple of weeks ago. And 
I think this is a much more sustainable way. So going back to the, the conversation that I started um, at the beginning of the podcast, it's, okay, so what's the best way to do this? And what Target has committed is 2 billion over you know, a four-year period. So by the end, so four and a half years, um, a four-year period. But what they're saying they're going to do is, is support earlier in the process. So they're talking about they're talking about their rich history of working with diverse businesses, but there's more we can do to spark change. So this idea of getting involved earlier on, helping with retail operations, helping with shopper experience, and talking about ideation, product development, and how to actually scale, is I think what is really needed. So don't just put the product on shelf, but invest and measure the progress to see if it's working or not. So you can see they've clearly got an intent. And they target, probably do have a target that they're going to deliver on. Um, but this idea of investing in supporting those black entrepreneurs, because we know, you know, when you speak to them, it, it, you grow with the brands, you're learning all the time. So just putting you out there might actually not help you at all as a founder. Um, so I think that support, making a big pledge, but hopefully maintaining transparency and accountability to say, this is how we're doing. And this is, these are the success success stories is really important. And um, the other thing I'll add is I, w- I wonder whether they're looking to get exclusivity of those brands or whether this is an industry level where they're saying, actually, we're going to do this because we believe in it. And if you guys want to go and be listed in any other brand, any other, every other retailer, then great. Um, but this is our contribution to their broader success. I really like the structure around this and I was lucky enough to um, watch a McKinsey presentation just this week about their latest diversity inclusivity um, I guess action plan and I know they they, they do a lot of a number crunching every year don't they particularly on uh, focusing on women I do, do a bit of work and tr- trying to get more women into the meat industry I'm underplaying that a bit of work Julie or I roll me <laughs> pretty much all my time trying to get more women into the meat industry so I was interested in what that they, they, they were talking about and uh, the, talking about the, the racial piece as well and they talked about set, setting a structure and making sure that you, you have groups internally talking about this and as you say setting uh, goals and and it looked to me as thought if Target got McKinsey in here because it just looked like all the tick boxes that they'd been talking about and sometimes it must take that external view to help give you the structure to deliver it and as you say that transparency around it as well is hugely important and to open the conversation and I suppose as, as the article talks about not to rush it that you you know you can't solve it all overnight as which you know from from the ad salt work that you're doing you just need to chip away at it and it'll get there but you need to have the plan in place so I was really buoyed by target but I'm really interested in your point there actually is there a I guess a a commercial edge here in terms of we've got exclusivity with those brands and that's the payoff Mm. what's what's your take on that exclusivity side of things Sam like if you're if you're a challenger brand and you have the opportunity to work with a retailer through some kind of incubator accelerator program as you know as, as there are obviously existing programs like that targeted just generally at challenger brands is exclusivity something that you think generally works for challenger brands or should they try and keep their options open where possible i don't there's no right or wrong answer on this i i think um i can do the pros let's do the pros of exclusivity well 
if you if you if you're working with with um, one of these incubators, you get so much support. You get you're you're guided through. You you're getting you're likely to get cheaper data. You're likely to um, get good payment like better payment terms. All those but you probably get that if you're a small brand anyway. So actually focusing in and saying how do I do one retailer really well is not a bad thing, particularly if it's a timed exclusive. If it's twelve months, eighteen months. That's actually not a lot of time. Um, and if you go into the learning, you're going to build and it helps the retailer. It could also really help the brand, particularly if you can just focus on getting that right. And you can build your team and you can learn how retail works and you can put all your social media and all your investment into one place. Um, I, th- I, th- I think it could work. What I would also say is it should be timed because what you don't want to do is limit your reach. And it's just balancing that to say, if we do this, are we going to limit our reach in the longer term? Um, And I don't think many retailers are saying, you know, you're going to be exclusive with us forever. But they might say, we're going to help you. But in return, we want exclusivity because we want to be distinctive for for a while. Um, Heard a stat, I think 90% of products retailers sell are identical. So so it's something huge like that. Um, in terms of, so the sales that come through that product, not necessarily the product count. Um, so you've got to do something different. So I can see where retailers are coming from. So I just think eyes wide open, what you're going to get. And if you're going to give exclusivity, what are you getting in return? Because that's a big thing to give, particularly if you've got an amazing brand that the reason they want exclusivity is because they want to be known for having your brand in there. Um, so what are you getting in return for that? Totally. And it, it just sparked a follow up question in my mind, because just as you were talking about sort of challenger brands, and obviously, as, as we said, there are in existing incubator and accelerator programs at those retailers for challenger brands already. What is it about how these programs are structured or run that means they're not currently delivering the kind of diversity of brand ownership that you would like to see? Yeah, I, I actually think, Julia, it starts earlier on. Mm. That's earlier on. I would say to a, if you spoke to a buyer, and I've been speaking, spoke to so many, which is amazing. But I also know that how many black owned brands are actually calling up Sainsbury's or Tesco or Waitrose and saying, we've got this amazing product. First of all, I don't think as many black people are doing it as white people. And also that, so, so it's, it's not, I think the, the incubator process works really well for challenger brands. But, even to get to a point where you're on a program, your product has to look, has to be ready, yeah? And there's a lot of money, time, um, networking, mistakes, safety net requirements that you need just to get to that point. It's 50 to 100,000 pounds, it's friends and family, it's who you know. And I think that is a big challenge, just getting to the point where these incubators have diverse people coming to them and then there's actually the products do also need to be good enough as well so i just think there's there's this space between i've got a great idea and i've got a manufacturable prototype that is the really messy expensive bit that not everyone makes it to through and it's just less likely from people for example black people to have the network to have the friends and family round and all those things, you know, the bootstrapping money to get there. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that any of the incubators are showing any kind of favoritism 
at the point of getting into the incubator. In fact, they're saying, great, if you can help us find these brands and get them to a point, and let's work with you to get them ready, that, that is where we're observing the need is. And that's the messy, risky bit. <laughs> Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from Modern Retail and it's titled To Increase Margins, Ghost Kitchens Are Going B2B. And um, This is a US-focused article, uh, first and foremost, but it does describe some really interesting trends that I think are relevant in a UK context as well. Essentially, what it talks about is ghost kitchen operators evolving from a B2C model to a B2B model, where they strike partnerships with residential apartment complexes, hotels, office buildings, and various employers to provide food for delivery. And typically, the idea is that they basically offer a white-labeled delivery service and a menu that is specific to a particular customer, so to a building or a company, with residents or employees getting a discount if they choose to order through that particular service. And the company that's mentioned throughout this article is called Zool, and uh, they now have agreements with 80 buildings across New York City doing a sort of white-labeled delivery service. And the reason these B2B models are emerging is, is for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, ghost kitchens have obviously seen a huge boom in demand during the pandemics. They are looking for ways to maintain some of that growth. And there's a limit to how many more individual customers you can convert to this. So going after the B2B opportunity uh, means that you are basically opening up a, a, another, another market, essentially. The other reason this makes a lot of sense is because of the scale and the efficiencies you can get. With these B2B services, you typically can't just order whenever you want. There are set delivery slots where that office building or that apartment complex gets their food delivered. So you're streamlining the fulfillment and the logistics and you're really cutting down on those last mile costs. And I just thought that is such an interesting model. And I can really see this work around offices in particular. Partly because, as the article points out, employers might want to offer extra incentives to entice employees back to the office. And a, a nice food delivery service, I suppose, could be part of that, especially if the discount is, is good enough. But also because some of the more traditional workplace canteens, cafeterias, etc., any kind of workplace catering, these options may not be as viable now if you have fewer people working in offices as more companies move to flexible working. So having a ghost kitchen operated delivery service could be a more viable alternative to you know, still provide um, food at, at, at the office without needing to have that in-house investment. Sam, what did you make of it? Could you see something like this take off here in the UK? Hundred percent. I mean, I've worked in um, yeah, I've worked in a few organisations where I'm not exactly excited about going down to the school canteen for lunch kind of experience. And I think we've all been there. And um, sometimes it's great, but sometimes you just think, oh, and there's there's nowhere close by that you might want to. You know, we can't all live in the middle of a, a city centre or something like that. Um, you know, Slough Trading Estate is a great example. Actually, I've worked there for years and you know, loads of organisations there. And I'll just look at something like this and I think this could be really exciting because, Julie, the one thing I'd add is variety. Um, yeah. knowing, that it negotiates, knowing, and if you love food, like, you know, 
I do, you know, looking forward to something and being able to choose something and knowing it's going to come and knowing um, that it might change up maybe every few weeks, but there's certainly a variety of menu. I think it's a fantastic idea. If I was a food service provider, I'd be thinking, ah, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to have to step our game up a bit. Um, what would be our solutions? Because you're right, do you need a permanent um, canteen that's provided by, I don't know, I going to use specific brand names, but we know those food service providers. Or can I just choose something like I would on an app? Um, and I know that it's going to come in a certain period of time. I think this would be in certain areas, um, industrial estate areas, workspace areas, a massive opportunity. Um, it's kind of, you know, probably city centres that you've got your Deliveroo's and you've got your Uber Eats. Maybe you've got that already. But in certain areas, this could work really well. And the efficiencies, and yes, when I read it, and you read the commercial efficiencies of bulk and delivering on bulk as opposed to, you know, one moped coming back and forth, delivering to different people, um, I would say it's a no-brainer. I'd I'd be surprised if this doesn't happen here very, very, very soon. I really like your comment about the school canteen as well, because there's only so many jacket potatoes with cheese cheese and beans you can eat through a week, isn't there? Or changing it up for tuna mayo. So uh, I I like that comment. And uh, I also liked in the article the fact there was potential partnerships with hotels, because same exactly the same boat if you know you're travelling for work and you know that room service menu like the back of your hand which I have done over the over the years and you think god I would like variety I would like something different exactly as you're saying in the in an office environment I think it could really help augment some of the uh, hotel offerings and actually differentiate them as they're opening back up and, and trying to do something different but maybe it's a long time off for the UK but hopefully it'll come soon. Laura what's your second pick for us? I can't wait to share my second pick with you and get your thoughts on this. Honestly, it's uh, it's uh, it's been something that I've been watching all week. So it's uh, from the BBC, and but it's been covered uh, extensively across food press and the nationals. M&S hits back at Aldi's Cuthbert the Caterpillar Cake revival, uh, and last week M&S lodged an intellectual property claim uh, with the High Court, and this is against uh, Cuthbert the Caterpillar Cake, which uh, Aldi. Um, was selling up until February of this year. So it was too similar to Colin the Caterpillar um, and is riding on the coattails of M&S. For background, Colin the Caterpillar uh, has three trademarks against the brand and has been around for 30 years and is integral to M&S in terms of their Macmillan uh, partnership and their Macmillan uh, coffee mornings that that they do to raise uh, money for that charity. At that point in my summary of the article, I'd like to say how many Colin the Caterpillars I've eaten over the years, but I probably couldn't top them up. Uh, But I know there's always an argument over the front and the back. Um, It's also worth mentioning that the other retailers are selling similar Caterpillar cakes. So Waitrose have Cecil, Tesco have Curly, Asda have Clyde, and there's many others. So... Aldi, as I say, have stopped selling their cake in February, but uh, as the title of the article says, they will now launch uh, the um, uh, Cuthbert back into store and the money will be going to two charities. One, their uh, charity partner, the Teenage Cancer Trust, and uh, also to Macmillan, M&S's charity partner. Um, Aldi, interestingly, unveiled the idea on Twitter and said, let's raise money for charity, not for lawyers, and tagged in the majority of the other retailers to ask them if they wanted to take part. It was interesting to see that Waitrose did come back to them on that and say they did. M&S have replied on Twitter saying that um, 
the cake based on Aldi's uh, Kevin the Carrot commercial would be better. Um, and in the article, Abib uh, also talks about Aldi um, more generally. As we know, they've probably um, been close to the wind in creating products which look or sound incredibly similar to other brands, um, says Gary Asim, an intellectual property specialist with the uh, law firm Shoesmiths. Uh, and then goes on to say M&S may find their case uh, against Aldi difficult since there's other Caterpillar cakes on the market. Um, they should have taken a zero tolerance approach from the start if they felt Colin and his partner Connie uh, was so important to them. So I guess, A, Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts on this and B, your thoughts on the tone of voice because the tone of voice on Twitter has, has stepped up. This isn't just folks managing a, a customer service Twitter feed. This is punchy, funky, different different tones. What are your thoughts? What's really interesting, these used to be conversations behind closed doors, lawyer to lawyer, and it would be a big deal for us internally. And we'll be like, no, 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 no. You can't, you know, you can't do that. But the lawyers can deal with the lawyers, but we'll maintain a good sales relationship. And we kind of knew this is how it was. But social media has changed everything. Like I've got people who friends who are not even interested in the industry laughing their heads off about some of the memes that are coming out and I, I think my biggest observation of this is there's a really serious bit but the world isn't take like the, the consumers are having a lot of fun from a social media perspective it's getting loads of coverage and you've got to be really careful because the tone which was a very serious lawyer one has moved to the playful one and you've got certain retailers trying to be like, oh yeah, we want to, we're going to play, but yeah, this is really serious. You've got to be careful. It's a different game. It's now a completely different game. And my view is, you just got to go with it and have fun with it because we don't, you know, the day-to-day person does not understand because the, the fact there's so many caterpillar cakes out there, they don't understand that. What they do understand is there's someone taking this very seriously, and there's a lot of other people trying to enjoy it. And I just, my question is. How is that coming across? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, ma- ma- as you say, I, th- I think gauging and, and striking the right balance on tone of voice, I think, is is so, so important on that. And I mean, Aldi's clearly won the social media battle on this. I mean, I think whoever is running their, their social media kind of has done a, a brilliant job. And I know, Laura, you often talk about the sort of behind the scenes bit and the kind of the way you need to be structured as a company, the way your marketing and comms people need to be empowered to be able to say, no, I'm going to write marks and snitches on Twitter and, and let that go viral. I mean, that's that's a fairly ballsy decision that not everyone's necessarily going to take. Yeah. There was, there was one thing in particular I thought was so interesting, and it's not, I don't think it was mentioned in the article, but there's a piece in The Grocer by Steve Farrell, and he had spoken to a number of lawyers who pointed out that um, it's not even necessarily, when you look at these trademark disputes or intellectual property disputes, it's not necessarily just whether the consumer might be confused buying the product. Because I think it's probably quite easy to argue that the packaging is different enough, you know, you probably not wouldn't expect a, a M&S product in an Aldi store if you're buying it there. But there is such a concept as post-purchase confusion, which is the idea that the harm the brand owner might suffer is not actually from the person buying it. But if I've bought a Colin or I've bought a Cuthbert and I bring it to my birthday party or I bring it to the office and I serve it up outside of its packaging without any clues for anyone else to understand that this is a Cuthbert and not a Colin, 
and people eat it and they might say, I don't know, oh God, Colin's gone downhill or the chocolate isn't as good or whatever they might think. Does the brand owner then suffer harm that way? So I'll be very interested to see whether they end up going down that road to, to try and argue that. Just just on that, I think that's a, a really important point. And you can't you can't get away from how serious it is because that's absolutely right. And the person eating that caterpillar cake might think, oh, I might not go to MS next time to get that caterpillar cake because they think it's from Yeah. I think though, before they're just more variables as you war game this and you consider how you're going to address it. Social media and look, no, thinking forward and the PR of it has to be higher up the agenda. Um, so it's almost yeah, probably nothing wrong with what MS is doing. It's just more, okay, we need to figure out how to do this in a way that doesn't, you know, to, to your point, if, if Aldi have won the social media battle, I'm like, haven't they won? I mean, isn't that, that so what's the battle? And, and, and then, you know, that is who, who's won out of this. And it's probably the person that has used this lever so much better. And it's just something you have to watch out when you think about these serious things and how they come out online and digitally. You're right. And that war gaming of it, right. I don't think maybe M&S have been cited about what uh, Aldi were going to do, but I don't know. And, you know, Aldi have won the social media battle, but have M&S maybe won what they wanted to achieve in terms yeah. of they wanted to differentiate their product? And as you say, Julie, once it's out the box, I can't believe I'm in this discussion. I'm loving it, by the way. <laughs> once it's out the box, <laughs> once it's out the box, you can't differentiate Colin from Cuthbert or arguably some of the others. But now the British public have been educated on this for the last week across social media. So has it reconnected? them to the likes of Colin when I went into my local M&S yesterday there was not a Colin to be seen uh, which I think you know has actually had a run on the product because people have thought forgot about them they're a great product they're only eight quid and the money goes to the profit goes to Macmillan and actually it becomes a talking point so yeah. uh, the, the, there's maybe a halo effect for M&S even though they haven't played the tone of voice right online yeah so um... Sam, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. It's been so, it has been a lot of fun, so thank you. Thank you very much. Loved it. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.